following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. All right, well, when I was a kid growing up, one of the surefire ways to get somebody to do something just really insane was to start off your conversation like this. I dare you to fill in the blank. You know, that didn't always work. So sometimes you'd have to kind of go to the next level and you would have to give them the, the double dare. And that just let them know that, you know, you, you weren't playing around. You meant, uh, you meant business. And you were serious about this challenge, uh, this dare that you were putting before them. But, you know, even sometimes some stunts and, and things were so crazy that you had to kind of bring it to that final level. And that was the, the triple dog dare, whereby you would uh, then go around barking like a chicken and going, bark, 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 bark. What are you, chicken? That would be like the ultimate in your face. You better do this. Otherwise, I'm going to tell everybody what a wimp you are. All right. And that was basically how things worked. Those were, those were some pretty good times. They were a lot simpler back then, but those were good times. I don't, I don't, you know, there's something almost therapeutic about watching people do something really insane, um, especially when it's not you. That just it gives you a lot of pleasure. Um, the, the dare was a very entertaining tool when uh, life got a little bit boring. But as a kid, you know, the dare itself was really reason enough to do something that didn't make a whole lot of sense. Right? But as you get older... You know, that dare doesn't carry the same weight that it once did. There's a need for something greater. And and as we get older, it's not uncommon to find a dare followed up with the response by the person, what will you give me if I do? Now, herein begins the line of rational thinking. No longer willing uh, to subject oneself to various degrees of pain over a simple dare. No, now the person starts to consider whether or not the potential pain or embarrassment is worth it. This allows them to make a, a more informed decision. You know, one reality show took this concept and they played it out in the front of viewers all over the world. And the show was called Fear Factor. And uh, the premise behind it was to have uh, its contestants compete against one another in an effort to uh, face some of their biggest fears. Now, during each episode, the contestants would need to take part in, in various challenges. And, and these challenges, also known as stunts, were, were a type of dare, as it were, to, to see what these contestants were willing to endure for the, the sake of, of having a chance to win $50,000 or maybe a different prize. Now, let me start off by saying that I've never seen Fear Factor. I've never watched it, nor would I ever look to endorse it based on some of its rather crude challenges that it has has put out as I was researching all this. The point I want to make, though, is that the contestants on the show were put into a position whereby they had to decide whether or not the reward that they would potentially receive was worth the challenge. They had to figure all of that out. And, you know, I found a a few of the more or less crude uh, challenges, and I thought I'd just kind of put them before you and let you decide if you might be willing to do something like this for a certain prize or a chance to win $50,000. Now, on one of the shows, the contestants were challenged to eat African cave-dwelling spiders. 
Now, this particular challenge was not for elimination, but instead it was for a brand new car. Now, the way it worked is the contestants lined up at a table full of African cave-dwelling spiders. Now, just curious, does anybody know what an African cave-dwelling spider looks like? All right, well, I'm here to educate you, so just kind of follow along here. All right, this is what a African cave-dwelling spider looks like. Now, I know that looks really big, or at least it does on my screen. Yeah, that looks pretty big on your screen, too. Whew. It's not that big, all right? It's, it's, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's big, but it's not like, you know. It, but but it, it's kind of there, and, and you know, this is, this is what they look like, and they're not a pretty thing. Um, but in this particular challenge, what a person would have to do is they would have to pick these spiders up alive, and then they would eat them, and whoever ate the most of these yummy-looking spiders was the proud winner of a brand-new car. So let me ask you. In your opinion, is it worth it? Would you do it? You know, just make it a new Honda Accord. Yeah, you considered eating those? All right, well, here's the thing, though. You are in it against other people, and it's whoever eats the most. Now, in this particular challenge, all of the contestants ate these African cave-dwelling spiders, but there was only one contestant that won, and that was the contestant that ate 12 of them. So again, they had to weigh it out. Is this, is this worth it? Is this worth it? Well, that's not all. You know, there's other stuff. On another one of the episodes, the contestants were asked to eat a special Fear Factor pizza that I trust you won't be finding anytime soon at your local pizza establishment. Here's a picture of what the pizza looked like. <clears throat> yum, 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 and yum. Let me just tell you some of the special ingredients. Just if you're a little queasy or, you know, a little weak of stomach, feel free to plug your ears. I won't take offense. Or if you go running out, I won't even make mention of it. All right. Here's, here's what it was. It had a crust that was made from cow bile. It had coagulated blood paste for sauce. It had rancid cheese and topping choices like live red worms and fish eyes. Now, I have no idea who sits around and comes up with these particular ideas. Um, but, you know, this is, this is the show. And this is what they're willing to do. And they're saying, are you willing to eat this? And you know what? Every contestant at this, uh, at this particular thing ate this pizza and was able to go on to compete in the next round for a chance to win $50,000. Again, not guaranteed, just a chance to win $50,000. But you had to get by this stage. Would you do it? In your opinion, is it worth it? We each have our own limitations on what we would determine would be worth it or not, especially in regards to these things. But wait, there's one more. The last visual, fear factor visual, <laughs> that I have to show you came in a, in a, in a show where the contestants had to... Uh, Stick their faces in a bowl full of cow eyes. Right? Now, that in and of itself would be pretty gross. Granted, it's, you know, but I, I might be willing to do that. But beyond that, this is what else they were required to do. And this is where it just draws the line, line for me. Uh, I might get a little sick up here as I explain this to you. And again, if you need to run out, I'll take no offense. Not only did they have to stick their face in there, but then they had to, without using their hands... They had, <laughs> yeah, Jane, it's that bad. 
Without using their hands, they had to, to pick up the cow eyes and puncture them with their teeth so that the juices from the eye went into a cup. Once that cup was filled... Oh. Once, once that cup was filled with the cow eye juice, they were then required to drink the eye juice until the glass was completely empty. And each contestant that completed this disgusting challenge was able to go on and compete in the next round for a chance to win $50,000. So let me ask you, in your opinion, is it worth it? Would you do it? All right. I don't like these guys looking at me, so I'm going to change that one real quick. There we go. All right. Now, needless to say, each of the people that were on that show, they went on that show knowing full well that they were going to be asked to do some pretty disgusting things. I mean, they signed up for it. They knew they'd have to endure some pretty gross stuff, but they agreed in part because to them, they felt that the notoriety and the potential for the $50,000 cash was worth it. It was something that was worthy of their efforts. Now, as we come to the text that we're going to be covering this morning, specifically Romans 8, 18 through 25, we come face to face with the question of whether or not the Christian life is worth it. Is the Christian life worth it? For, for you see, Paul was not unmindful of the fact that the living out of the Christian life, the, the living in this fallen world, uh, it's not always easy. In fact, he would probably go so far as to say it can be just flat out hard. I mean, if anybody might be tempted to compare how life was before being a Christian to how it was after becoming a Christian, surely it was Paul. Because Paul was somebody who, uh, the Bible tells us a little bit about how things were before he got saved. I mean, just listen to all he had going for him before his life-altering encounter with the risen Lord. It says, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law... A Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteous, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. I mean, this was a guy that had some standing in the community that he ran in. Okay? He was well thought of. He was well established within it. And yet all of those benefits and all of those privileges were not able to stop what would happen to him the moment that Paul became a follower of Jesus Christ. He tells us in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 27 that he was beaten times without number and was often in danger of death. Five times he received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. Spending a night and a day in the deep. He went on frequent journeys and was put in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from his countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. He was in labor and hardship with many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Yes, if anyone might be tempted to wonder if this Christianity thing was really worth it, surely it would have been Paul. But listen to the words that he writes to the Christians in Rome, as recorded to Rome in Romans eight eighteen through 25. He writes this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us 
For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But we hope for what we do not see. With perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. I mean, I don't know how a believer could possibly read these verses And not be greatly encouraged. For it's in these verses that you and I are reminded of the glory that is awaiting all of us that have placed our hope and our trust in the perfect work and person of Jesus Christ. It's this future glory that is really the theme of this whole paragraph. I mean, as followers of Jesus Christ, as those that have come to put our trust in Jesus Christ, believing that he was sent from heaven, that he was born of a virgin that he lived a perfect life and that he then offers this perfect life up as a substitute for all of the wrong things that we've done and actually goes and dies on a cross in our place, suffering on our behalf, that this Christ who was then buried in a tomb three days later rose and then after showing himself to many people, he ascended into heaven where he is right now seated at the right hand of the Father As followers of this Christ, we need to make sure that we never lose sight of the fact that we will have difficulties in this life. You see, until Jesus returns, we will continue to wait along with creation for the full manifestation of our adoption as sons. But when that day comes, when that day finally comes, the glory that is going to be revealed to us will make whatever sufferings we endured here seem like nothing. This morning, I want us to unpack three truths from our text, three truths that, if rightly understood, will encourage us not to grow weary in waiting for our glorious future. These truths are given to us by God in an effort to help us to persevere in the faith. The first truth that I want us to look at this morning has to do with suffering. Our current suffering cannot be compared with our future glory. Our current suffering cannot be compared with our future glory. Look at what he writes in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, Paul starts off our passage with the term, I consider. This isn't something that Paul uh, um, has uh, just kind of some random thought that comes on, but rather it's something that he's thought long and hard over. Okay? It's something that he's had to consider deeply. And it's not simply a matter of personal opinion, but rather it's a word that expresses a, wrong, a, a strong assurance without doubt. It's a, a firm conviction. But how does Paul get to that firm conviction. How does he obtain this? Picture in your mind one of those balancing scales that has on on it the two sides. The one on the the right and and one on the left. Now, what Paul did is he took took all of the sufferings of this current life that that we are living in, this present time, and he placed them on the one side of the scale. 
Then he took the glory that is to be revealed to us and he placed that on the other side of the scale and he said that they were not even worthy to be compared. Not even worthy to be compared. I mean, if you stop and think about that for a moment, brothers and sisters, how great, how incredible must this future glory be for our current sufferings to be not even worthy to be compared. I mean, you and I can compare some very vastly different things, can't we? I mean, we can compare a small rock to a mountain. We can compare a drop of water to an ocean. We can compare a single star to an entire galaxy. But Paul tells us that our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. You know, it's important to note that the sufferings of this present time that Paul writes about is not something that is peculiar to, uh, to his particular day alone, but rather it signifies the age that all believers are in, the age that you and I find ourselves in right now. And it is an age that is in sharp contrast to the age to come. Okay? And, and it's in this present age that we will have to deal with suffering because the Bible is very clear when it comes to Christians and suffering. We will suffer. You know, it's not as if you and I become immune to suffering because we're now in Christ. It's not like all of a sudden, okay, I'm a Christian. It's all good. Life's easy. No struggles, no trials, no difficulties. No, brothers and sisters, we are to expect suffering and trust that God will use it in our lives to conform us more and more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. This is what his word promises he will do. And so we shouldn't be caught off guard when we are suffering. Surely there's suffering that comes upon us for a variety of reasons. And and sometimes suffering comes upon us from our own foolish and rebellious choices. We suffer because we choose to to step outside of the the gracious parameters that God has, has, has so lovingly laid out for us to walk in. But, you know, there's also suffering that comes upon us for no other reason than the fact that we're followers of Jesus Christ, right? I mean, we love Jesus Christ and we're trying to walk in with Jesus Christ. Well, guess what? The world hated Jesus Christ. They hated him. So don't be surprised when the world hates us too. And in addition, there's also suffering that happens because, you know what, quite honestly, we live in a broken world. We live in a world that's overrun with sin, Commentator Douglas Moo offers some helpful insight when he writes this. He says, These sufferings of the present time are not only trials that are endured directly because of confession of Christ, for instance, persecution, but encompass encompass the whole gamut of suffering, including things such as illness, bereavement, hunger, financial reverses, and death itself. Each of us sitting in this room right now knows what it is in some way to suffer. And I'm sure... That, that we can relate to each of the different forms of suffering that have been mentioned. We, we've suffered through selfish, foolish choices. We, we've suffered for taking a stand to follow Jesus Christ. We've suffered through circumstances that have been outside of our control, that occur because we live in a fallen world. Whatever we've suffered through, if we were to be honest with ourselves and each other, we'd have to say that it, it, 
it didn't feel very light. It felt, it felt heavy. It felt like far more than we could ever hope to bear up under. I mean, I'm sure that each of us has felt the pain and the agony that come with current sufferings. I'm sure we've, we've all cried out to God, asking Him for relief, asking Him to free us from this. You know, quite possibly many of you here this morning are in the midst of suffering right now. Your marriage seems broken. And you wonder if you'll ever be able to rejoice in the wife of your youth or again, or if you'll ever be able to find your husband altogether desirable again. Perhaps your children have turned their, their backs on everything that you've tried to bring them up in. They find more pleasure in pursuing the things of this world than they do in the things of God. They've strayed away from the faith. They continue to make rebellious choices. And there's no sign of them coming back anytime soon. Maybe you've suffered the loss of a job or you're in the midst of a financial crisis and you have no idea, not a clue, as to how things are going to work out. Those things that you once took for granted that you didn't even think twice about, that you just went and bought, well, those things are in in the very question as to whether you're going to be able to hold on to them. They're in jeopardy of being taken away and you have no way of stopping it. And your future just seems uncertain. You might even have been recently diagnosed with an illness or somebody you deeply love has and the doctors don't have all the answers to your questions and and they don't seem to have a clear direction as to, you know, what's going to help and how they're going to be able to, to deal with that sickness and whether or not they're going to be able to do anything. Not quite sure how they're going to move forward. A lot of uncertainty. Now, whether you're dealing with these things or any other type of suffering for that matter, the feelings that come from them are intense. And we can become easily overwhelmed because they seem so great. And there doesn't appear to be any relief, any way out from under that's weight. You know, and most of us have a tendency to think that our particular circumstances, our particular trials are are somehow unique to us. We look at our situations and we think, surely, surely no one else has had to endure this. Nobody else has had to undergo this. But you know what? We would be wrong for surely someone has gone before us. In a little essay entitled, No Sorrow Like Jesus' Sorrow, John Newton writes these words. He says, The highest wonder ever exhibited to the world, to angels and men, is the Son of God suffering and dying for sinners. His sufferings were indeed temporary, limited in their duration, but otherwise extreme. The unknown sorrows of the Redeemer are a continual source of support and consolation to His believing believing people. In His sufferings, they contemplate His atonement, His love, and His example, and they are animated by the bright and glorious issue, for He passed from death to life, from suffering to glory, end quote. And brothers and sisters, it is this, this glory that He has entered into that is still to be revealed to us. Oh, what an incredible day that will be. I mean, stop and think about it. A day when we will finally, will finally see Jesus with an unveiled face and will behold his glory 
And it says, and being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. Yes, as Christians, we suffer. But as Paul reminds us, our sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in a parallel passage in 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul writes this. He says, for momentary light affliction, affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. You know, earthly sufferings, they are real and they hurt. But as we put them on the scales and, and we weigh them against the future glory that has to be revealed to us, they are seen as momentary and light That, brothers and sisters, is an immense glory. And it's what awaits each and every one of us that has put our hope and our trust in Jesus Christ. What a glory that will be. Now, having considered this first truth, we're now ready to look at the second truth. Creation eagerly awaits the revealing of our future glory. Creation eagerly awaits the revealing of our future glory. Paul writes in verses 19 through 22, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Now, the first question we need to ask ourselves before we go any farther here in our study is, what does Paul mean when he speaks about creation? I mean, there have been many thoughts and opinions over the centuries in regards to answering this question. So let's just take a few minutes to, to kind of discuss and to consider which one makes the most sense. Origin considered creation to be the whole of creation, including believers and unbelievers, as well as angels. Augustine thought it to be the entirety of mankind, believers and unbelievers. Still others saw it as unbelieving mankind only. Some, believers only. Others took it a whole other direction, and they thought that it meant angels. And still others thought of it to mean Satan and the demons. So what exactly does Paul mean by creation when he refers to it through verses 19 through 22? Well, John Murray offers some real help in, this, in his commentary on Romans when he writes this. He says, angels are not included because they were not subjected to vanity and to bondage of corruption. Satan and the demons are not included because they cannot be regarded as longing for the manifestation of the sons of God. And they will not share in the liberty of the glory of the children of God. The children of God themselves are not included because they are distinguished from the creation in verses 19, 21, and 23. The unbelieving of mankind cannot be included because the earnest expectation does not characterize them. All of rational creation is excluded by the terms of verses 20 through 23. The only thing that is left is the non-rational creation, animate and inanimate. Paul is talking about the non-human physical world of matter. But why then, you might ask, does he refer to creation acting in a manner that seems so human-like? How does creation anxiously long for something? Or how does it wait eagerly or, or not willingly be subjected or get set free from slavery or corruption? How does creation groan 
and suffer the pains of childbirth. Well, Paul is not offering some new teaching, trying to teach us that uh, nature has some personal feelings that are much like ours. What he's doing is he's using a common Old Testament method whereby nature is given human qualities. Listen to some rather familiar verses that demonstrate this literary device. In Psalm 65, 12 through 13, it goes, The pastures of the wilderness drip, and the hills gird themselves with rejoicing. The meadows are clothed with flocks, and the valleys are covered with grain. They shout for joy. Yes, they sing. Psalm 98.8 says this. It says, Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Isaiah 24.4 says, The earth mourns and withers. The world fades and withers. The exalted of the people of the earth fade away. The point that Paul's trying to make here, that he's trying to get across in this section, is that creation... It's broken. And the reason it's broken can only be traced back to the fall. The the sin that caused Adam and Eve to be banished from the garden also brought a curse upon the earth. This is what it says in Genesis 3, 17 through 19. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you are discerned. You know, we witness the effects of the curse on creation all around us. I mean, as beautiful as some things are, as as much as we step out of the city and we get into these places that, that really haven't been overdeveloped by man, we see some beauty and yet danger lurks within that beauty. Wild beasts roam and tear each other apart. Storms drop massive amounts of of water causing flooding in certain areas. Dry conditions create ample opportunity for great forests to be set ablaze and, and to burn out of control for many days. Hurricanes, tornadoes level anything that dares to stand in its place. Earthquakes stalk the land looking for things to destroy. Clearly, Paul paints an accurate picture when he writes that the creation was subjected to futility. Creation is is warring against itself. Everywhere we look, we're reminded that things are broken. Creation isn't functioning the way that it should be. It wasn't it's not working like it was created to be. And this makes sense because the ones that were meant to be its crown Mankind is broken. But creation was not subjected to futility without any hope. Coupled with God's divine judgment of, uh, of, uh, of wrath upon this earth, of this curse upon the earth, was God's merciful deliverance. See, the hope of creation is directly tied to the revealing of the sons of glory. That is why Paul describes creation as having an anxious longing. You know, if you've ever been to a parade and, and you get these kids that are, are trying to kind of just look and see what's going to happen, they kind of get up on their tiptoes and they're kind of craning their necks around trying to see all that's happening. And you know what? That's kind of the picture that Paul is painting for us with creation. He's saying, you know what? Creation's just like that kid wanting to take it all in, wanting to see it all. And it's looking, it's looking for what's coming next. What's going to be coming? And and it wants to see, and it's up on its tiptoes, and it's really just looking. It's longing to see what's next. Creation 
is just like that. It's up on its tiptoes. It's straining its neck, just waiting for the day when you and I will finally assume our proper role in creation. Charles Cranfield puts it eloquently. He writes this. He says, The whole magnificent theater of the universe, together with all its splendid properties and all the varied chorus of subhuman life created for God's glory, is cheated of its true fulfillment so long as man, the chief actor in the great drama of God's praise, fails to contribute his rational part. See, Paul goes on to tell us that the the whole creation groans. It suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Creation continues to groan with labor labor pains. Now, not being a woman, I have no... I can't tell you exactly how creation is feeling at this moment, but some of you women... Some of you women can. Some of you, some of you women know the, the feeling that is there. You know, you know the pain. But one positive thing about the labor pains is that you know that when they are finally over, it's all going to be worth it. You see, creation is not suffering under death pangs, but rather it's undergoing birth pangs, leading to a day whereby everything is going to be made right And all is going to work as it should. Now we get a little glimpse of what this is going to look like in Isaiah 11, 6 through 9. This is what it says. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze their Young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. See, creation is waiting to be set free from its slavery to corruption. It's longing for the day when everything will be as it was originally created to be. But as we've learned, that will not happen until God's children are fully redeemed. Creation waits, but even more importantly, God's children wait too. Which brings us to our third truth this morning. Christians eagerly wait for the fulfillment of our future glory. Christians eagerly wait for the fulfillment of our future glory. Now, as we consider these last few verses, I hope that they will bring you as much encouragement as they've brought me. I mean, for years, I found myself caught in the tension between the work that God has begun in me, the sending of His Holy Spirit, the enabling power that comes with the Spirit dwelling inside of me, and yet the final culmination that is to come of this work where my adoption and my redemption are made complete. Paul tells us that that all believers have the first fruits of the Spirit. Now, some feel that this is a a harvest image that's drawn from the the Jewish custom depicted in Leviticus 23, whereby a a portion of the harvest was presented to the priest, uh, being called the first fruits, as it were, and, and this was all done in an effort to bless the remainder of the harvest. But this seems unlikely, I think, due to the fact that this, this type of offering was something uh, that the, the individual offered to God. And, and really, when, when Paul uses the term first fruits, he, he usually speaks of what God gives to the believer. 
And, and really what God gives to the believer as a first installment or as a, a pledge of future blessings to come. And yet, even though you and I have been given the Spirit, Paul mentions that we still groan within ourselves. Ray Steadman writes this. He says, our lives consist of groans. We groan because of the ravages that sin makes in our lives and in the lives of those we love. Also, we groan because we see possibilities that are not being captured and employed. We groan in disappointments and bereavement and sorrow. We groan physically in our pain and our limitation. Life consists of a great deal of groaning. As believers, we groan because we find ourselves caught in between our our present struggles and our future longings. I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, but I can't wait for the day whereby I I finally am free from the struggle with sin. I can't wait for the day when every thought, when every word, when every deed will be nothing short of right, pure, and lovely. You know, in a very real and tangible way, my life is different from what it once was. Because of God's Holy Spirit indwelling inside of me, I have become a new creature. The Word of God tells me and the Holy Spirit affirms that I am a child of God. I have been redeemed. 1 Peter 1, 17-19 tells us this. It says, If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's works, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And yet get this, Paul tells us that we are waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So how does, how does that work? How am I already adopted and redeemed and yet still waiting eagerly for those things? Well, herein lies the tension of the already but not yet. Attention that finds us receiving and embracing God's gracious and wonderful work in our life, coupled with an expectation and hope that there is still more to come. I mean, the Apostle Paul had no problem in keeping this tension. I mean, in 1 Corinthians 13, 9 through 12, he writes this. He says, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. I find great hope in knowing that there is still way more to come. I mean, if, if this were as good as it gets, and yes, I'm pointing to my entirety here, if this were the best that I had to look forward to, I, mean, I would fall into a, a state of depression. I mean, who would hope for this? Who would hope for this? Lord, I I hope I can spend an eternity struggling against doing what you want me to do. 
Lord, I, I hope I can always wrestle with trying to place my wants and my desires ahead of yours. Lord, I, I hope I get to always think more highly of myself than I ought to. I mean, who would hope for such things? And yet this is what many of us see in our own lives, even as sons and daughters that have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. So the need is to hope for something more, something greater than what we see now. That's what Paul writes about in verses 24 through 25. He says, for in hope... We've been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he already sees. But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. What you and I are looking for is Christ's return. Because in Christ's return, it will usher in an eternity that will will not require us to hope anymore for there will be No more sin. In this new eternity, you and I will be and do all that we were created to be and do. But until that day, until that day comes about, you and I need to patiently wait for this glorious future. In his book entitled Forever, Paul David Tripp writes these words of encouragement. He says this, he says, Eternity reminds believers that this hard moment isn't all there is. It tells us where God is taking his people and his world. Eternity celebrates the truth that God will win. Eternity shocks us with the certainty that death will someday die along with all of the pain and suffering that are attached to it. Eternity tells us that God will dry out our last tears. Eternity tells us that God's children will be delivered from everything that is false, unwise, destructive, dangerous, and unholy. In the middle of the story, when life is unpredictable, confusing, and hard, we need more than a temporary emotional high. We need an eternal hope that gives us peace and rest, that help us to deal with the difficult realities of life in a fallen world. You see, brothers and sisters, even though we're saved, if we've put our trust in Jesus Christ, This life is not all there is. What we are now is not all that we have to look forward to being. There is something far more glorious. And the more you and I realize that, the more that you and I are able to kind of look beyond this world and look into the future, as it were, of of all that Jesus Christ promises and all that we're going to see when he comes in the fullness of his glory and we get to take part in that, it, it will make this life's struggles seem light as we drink in all that awaits us in glory. I mean, did you ever just stop and think about it? I mean, what's the worst thing that somebody could do to you? Kill you? Take your life? Is that really so bad? We get to go and and, and be in heaven with Jesus. But again, we, we have to have this understanding that there is something far greater still to come. What we, what we experience and what we are going through now is not, is not it. Creation's broken. We're broken. There's something far greater. And as believers, we have to have that longing for that to come. We have to be expecting Jesus to come and to make everything right because right now it's not. 
And even though we're redeemed, and even though we're children of God, and even though we have God's Holy Spirit working in us, even though we have all of these spiritual blessings that have been poured out on us from the heavenlies, there is still far more to come. It is going to be far greater than you and I could ever imagine. So much so that whatever you're going through, whatever you've gone through, will pale in comparison. It won't even be worthy to be compared to the glory that will be ours in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we have a glorious future, a future that is so glorious that it will make whatever you're going through now seem light and momentary. It is a future that is so glorious that even creation is longing to see it. It is a future whereby we will finally see Jesus face to face and we will be like him. Not like this. Praise God for that. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, you are good. And we thank you for your, your kindness to us. We thank you for the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that you will continue to work in our lives and help us, Lord, not to grow weary as we wait for Christ to return. Help us to patiently endure the struggles and the trials of living in a fallen world. Help us, Father, to be anxiously looking for Christ's return and help us all to be ready, Lord. I pray that you will do a work in our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that if there's anybody out there that does not know you, that they would come to understand that the things I've been talking about today, Lord, don't apply to them but it can. So, Father, I pray that you will stir somebody's heart to give their life to Jesus Christ so that they, too, can have a glorious future. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's precious name. Amen.